Hi, welcome again to The Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias. I wanted to go through a book again called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Science. I love the uh, Politically Incorrect Guides. They're a lot of fun to read. Uh, George Gilder, who's a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, has this to say about this book. In this masterly book, venerable science writer Tom Bethel names and nabs all the subsidized fear mongers and their gullible press. So uh, we can argue about these things. Uh, there are a lot of uh, footnotes to suggest that what Bethel is doing is accurate. Um, <laughs> on the back it says, I bet your teacher never told you this. And then there's a list of things. Intelligent design has more evidence in its favor than Darwinism does. Nuclear power is the cleanest and safest form of energy. The church did not persecute Galileo for his science. Small doses of what are called toxic chemicals can be good for you. There's been virtually no improvement in cancer mortality since the war on cancer was declared in 1971. Private investors know embryonic stem cells are unlikely to produce miracle cures. So that's just part of it. Isn't that amazing? So I'm going to take a chapter here called Evolution, the Missing Evidence, and take a look at that. It's chapter 14 toward the back of the book. Now, not all of this book has to do with uh, Christianity and apologetics. So that's why I'm just picking certain parts. You know, some of it's on things like chemistry and DDT and nuclear energy and global warming and things like that, which uh, they're important. I mean, I think they're really interesting, but I'm trying to make this podcast deal with things to do with Christianity. So, evolution, the missing evidence. Um, a geneticist, Thomas Morgan, I guess mentioned a hundred years ago that evolution means making new things, not more of what already exists. Hmm. Uh, the author, uh, Bethel, says for the layman, evolution implies that one species is connected by an ancestral chain to another. Does that make sense? Sure. Or it means that you've got these group of organisms that are undeniably related. You know, for example, you've got bats and bears and whales. They're all mammals. And they share their common features because they're all descended from the same ancestral mammal. So you've got kind of a biological tree, I guess you might say. Well, what I think is fascinating, I've heard this other places, and I wanted to tell you the story here that he relates. He says, one of the most remarkable discussions about evolution was held at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. And the speaker was Colin Patterson. Now, he's a senior paleontologist at the, at the British Museum, and he's visiting the U.S. So in 1981, he was addressing a group of professional biologists and museum staffers that had an interest in animal classification. Now, he had already stirred the pot a bit. He had caused a controversy a few years earlier, saying, if the theory of evolution is true, <laughs> and that got everybody all riled up. Now, he emphasized he had no religious agenda. Religion, he said, is just a pack of lies. But what he opposed was the confusion of knowledge and faith. Um, a faithful Darwinian who was stunned, he said, by a skeptical outlook, asked him if he believed in evolution. And Patterson said, well, yeah, he said, I do. But he just said that scientific claims weren't, support, weren't supposed to be matters of faith. There better be some evidence. There better be some support. So we have the transcript, apparently, of Patterson's talk to this group in 1981. And here are just a few lines from it. I'm not going to do the whole thing. But here's what Patterson said that I think uh, we ought to pay attention to. 
Patterson said, one morning I woke up and something had happened in the night. And it struck me that I'd been working on this stuff. Now he's talking about evolution for 20 years. And there was not one thing I knew about it. That was quite a shock, he says, to learn that one can be so misled for so long. So now he's talking to that group. He says, the question is, can you tell me anything you know about evolution? Any one thing, any one thing that you think is true. He said, I tried that question on the geology staff in the Field Museum of Natural History. He said, the only answer I got was silence. I tried it on the members of the Evolutionary Morphology Seminar in the University of Chicago. He says, that's a very prestigious body of evolutionists. And all I got there, he said, was silence for a long time. And then eventually, one person said, yes, I do know one thing. Remember, the question is, can you tell me any one thing you think is true about evolution? So one person there says, yes, I do know one thing. It ought not to be taught in high school. And there was some laughter. So you can tell what's going on here. I mean, Patterson uh, later says the level of knowledge about evolution is remarkably shallow. See, we're, we're told all the time that it's an absolute slam dunk. Evolution is set. And nobody's disagreeing. Maybe about the small points, but not about the big issue. Yeah, but behind the scenes, they are confused. Um, Patterson says there's not one fossil for which you can make a watertight argument to, to show where one organism came from another organism. He said there's no, no evidence in the fossil record. If you're curious about that talk of Patterson, it is available at the Access Research Network online, a transcript of it. And it says the curious can even obtain an audio copy, so that might be interesting. I'm just kind of skimming through the pages here. It's a long chapter, but I love this. Uh, here's another story that he includes. He says, one of the great mysteries in the history of life is what's called the Cambrian Explosion. It's about 500 million years ago. And he said, almost all of the total animal body plans appeared on Earth within a really short period of time. They don't have any antecedents. In other words, you can't find ancestors in the rocks. Now, what <laughs> what really stirred things up was that Stephen Meyer of the Discovery Institute wrote an article about the Cambrian explosion, and it actually got published. Usually anything to do that challenges uh, evolution is kept out of any kind of print, but it was published by a peer-reviewed magazine called Proceedings of the Biological Society of Washington. And Meyer wasn't just winging it. He relied, as he wrote this, on the work of scientists at Yale and Oxford and other places. But the editor of the journal, a man named Richard Sternberg, was in huge trouble because he published this thing. His colleagues got so upset, the chairman of the zoology department called Sternberg's supervisor and asked, is this guy a religious fundamentalist? Was he a right-winger? Is he affiliated with a religious organization? And Sternberg eventually had to surrender his office and keys to the department floor, denying him access to the species, uh, sorry, the specimen collections that he needed. Uh, somebody wrote in the Wall Street Journal later, the Biological Society of Washington released a vaguely ecclesiastical statement regretting its association with the article. It didn't address its arguments, but denied its orthodoxy. Isn't that interesting? It says uh, they, they weren't able to attack it, but they just didn't like what it was saying. One senior Smithsonian scientist complained that that article made us into the laughing stock of the world, even if this kind of rubbish sells well in backwoods USA. You catch that? So if you challenge evolution or you disagree with some of it, that makes you a backwoods yahoo, it makes you a knuckle dragger, a mouth breather, whatever you want to say. 
So uh, Bethel ends this party. He says, notice it wasn't the claims about the Cambrian explosion that caused the fury. It was just the fact that it got published and kind of pulled the curtain back and let people see what was going on behind the scenes. All right, well, it says, if you argue, if you're a Darwinian and you argue that the similarity of structure is evidence for evolution, in other words, the structure came about from a previous type of animal, they said there's some problems with that. There's some remarkable similarities of structure that not even Darwinian biologists attribute to common descent. So, for example, the octopus eye is really similar to a human eye, but biologists don't think there was some kind of common ancestor of octopuses and humans that had an eye like that. Well, that's a problem. And then it says the earliest fossils of some species just sort of pop up like they just came fully formed, like bats. It says the oldest bat fossils already had sonar built in. So it seems sonar and flight arose about the same time and really quickly. So it says uh, you would think that if things like uh, the adaptation of the ear and the brain and the muscles and all this kind of stuff in different animals, you think if all these things emerged as an accumulation of many accidental steps and you look at bats, then the fossil terrain should have, what, a bunch of half bats and near bats and almost made it bats, but there are no half bats, somebody said, who's a leading expert. There's just nothing and then there are bats. Here's a man named Henry G. that's G-E-E, -E. He's a nature editor. He worked with Colin Patterson for a while. He said, the intervals of time that separate fossils are so huge, we can't say anything definite about their connection through ancestry and descent. Isn't that interesting? Each fossil, he says, is an isolated point. There's no noble connection to any other given fossil. All right? Can I say that one again? Fossils are so separate in time that nobody can say anything about what connects one fossil to another as far as ancestry. And then what about humans? Well, Bethel says all the physical evidence for human evolution could be put with room to spare into a single coffin. He's quoting here uh, an individual. There are no fossil chimpanzees. There are no fossilized chimpanzee skulls. All is guesswork. Okay, I think that's interesting too, guesswork. Um... Somebody said, well, here was a Darwinian evolutionist. He said, you could compare the fossil record to automobile models. He said, it's descent with modification. So he, goes, he says it like this. If you took a 53 and a 54 Corvette, right? 1953-54 Corvette, and then a 54 and a 55, he said you'd notice descent with modification. That's what Darwin proposes for animals, slight changes over time. He says, well, that's what you see with the cars, so he said that evidence is solid. It's, it's true. But other people, critics, like Jonathan Wells, says, you know, that doesn't work very well. Automobiles are manufactured according to archetypes. Those are plans built up by engineers. So there can be other explanations besides descent with modification. Uh, Philip Johnson, a law professor, said this is um, Barra's blunders, a man named Barra, said the Corvette doesn't illustrate naturalistic evolution at all. It illustrates how intelligent designers add variations to a basic design plan. So says actually what biologists say is proof of evolution or common ancestry is pretty much evidence of, it could be, evidence of common design. 
So one design works well, and then you spin off from that. And, of course, uh, Bethel is using some of uh, Jonathan Wells' information in his book, Icons of Evolution. That's a really interesting book, too. And uh, so I want to pick up on that for just a second. The book's subtitle, that uh, one on Icons of Evolution, is Why Much of What We Teach About Evolution is Wrong. And at this point, I think this is so fascinating. Here are some examples that Wells brings out where evidence was either created or misrepresented trying to prove Darwinism. So here's one. Darwin thought that the strongest proof of his theory came from embryology, and he depended on a German biologist, Haeckel, who had drawings of embryos, and it showed these embryos from different animals were virtually identical in the earliest stages, and they only got different as they developed. Well, that looked like Darwin evolution, didn't it? Uh, biologists, though, for a said a century, according to Wells, that those embryos didn't look as similar as Heckel draw, drew them. It turned out, in some cases, he just did the same embryo drawing and said it came from different animals. Uh, sometimes he doctored his drawings to make the embryos look more alike than they really were. said even Heckel's own contemporaries were critical of his work and charges of fraud happened in his lifetime. And yet, and yet, and this is what Wells' point is, some version of those drawings can be found in even current biology textbooks. Isn't that something? They're still around because they work so well to prove evolution, even if they're false. Here's another area where evidence was invented or misrepresented. It's the old peppered moth story. I think this is uh, interesting stuff. In the 1800s, most peppered moths in England had shifted from being light-colored to being dark-colored uh, because of a lot of pollution and stuff. And because they were dark, they could hide on trees better, on tree trunks, because tree trunks were darkened by pollution. So it protected darker moths from predatory birds. And so uh, one guy wanted to test this. He let light and dark moths loose onto tree trunks and watched. And birds ate the more conspicuous moths. They ate more of the light moths. So he called this Darwin's missing evidence. And peppered moths, man, that became the rage. That was the best example of natural selection. And it got told over and over again in biology textbooks. Oops. What happened in the 1980s, though? Researchers found that peppered moths don't normally rest on tree trunks. They fly at night and they hide under branches in the daytime. And by letting them loose in daytime, the man that was uh, using this uh, idea had actually created an artificial situation. And as for those photos, they did have photos of moths on tree trunks. They were staged. Even, even um, some photographers even glued dead moths to trees. <laughs> that was not the true situation. They were hiding under uh, leaves, uh, hmm, under branches. How about the tree of life itself? Have you all seen pictures of that in different textbooks? The tree of life. It shows at the bottom simple animals, and they branch out into more complicated animals, and we're up near the top. And that's what Darwinism predicted, that the history of life would resemble a branching tree. But this is all sorts of wrong. Yeah, so many ways wrong. The fossil record shows the major groups of animals appear fully formed. Padunk, there they are. Kind of a Cambrian explosion rather than diverging from a common ancestor. In fact, you know what I heard somebody say? It's really, if you look at how life, uh, the fossil record seems to indicate it's not a tree. It's not a branching tree. It's like grass little bits of grass, right? So picture a, 
a side view of graphs, you got all these individual stocks coming up. And it said 150 years of fossil collecting has made this problem worse. Instead of some slight differences appearing first, the greatest differences appear right from the start. It's kind of top-down evolution. But most biology textbooks, Bethel points out, don't even mention the Cambrian explosion. They keep saying, oh yes, the tree of life, definitely a fact. Uh, it said it's a hypothesis masquerading as a fact. Um, let's see, how many more do I want to do here? Uh, let me pick just two more and I'll stop. Okay, so here's some more examples of things that are told to people today that aren't true, that people believed at one time. How about Stanley Miller and Harold Urey in the 1950s? They tried to come up with creating amino acids, which are the building blocks of life, tried to come up with that in a flask. They, they tried to mimic what they thought the natural conditions of the Earth's early atmosphere were, and they sent electric spark through this mixture, and they formed simple amino acids. They landed at the bottom of the flask, and they said, wow, these are building blocks of proteins, and proteins are the building blocks of life. We've got it. Now we can create living organisms. That seemed to confirm evolution, that maybe in the early Earth's atmosphere, lightning struck, and amino acids were created. You didn't need a divine intelligence. Just put the right gases together, a little bit of electricity, and life was bound to happen. Carl Sagan said there's got to be billions of stars out there teeming with life. Oops, there are some problems, though. Scientists could not ever get beyond the simplest amino acids, so they, they would never turn into proteins. And the creation of proteins began to seem not just a small step, but a huge leap. An amino acid is to a living organism what a letter of the alphabet is to a Shakespearean play, Bethel says. And then the, the death knell to this Miller-Urey experiment came in the 1970s. Scientists realized the Earth's early atmosphere was nothing like the gases used by Miller and Urey. You put those gases in a Miller-Urey apparatus and you don't get anything. You don't even get basic amino acids yet. Now, this is the part that's frustrating. Textbooks continue to use that Miller-Urey experiment to argue that scientists have demonstrated the first step in the origin of life. No, they haven't. All right, so I'll end on one more. Uh, again, these are all fake illustrations, supposedly telling us how Darwinism works. This is called Darwin's Finches. Now, he was, uh, I say he, Darwin, uh, was a naturalist on the British ship Beagle, and when the Beagle visited the Galapagos Islands, he collected all sorts of specimens, including some finches. Now, in the 1970s, a couple of people noted beak-sized changes in the finches of those islands after a severe drought. So the finches that had longer beaks were able to find seeds better than ones with short beaks. And they said, ah. So it was a small change, but it was a change. And they said, there you go. But said it failed to point out, catch this, the finch beaks returned to the different size when the rains returned. There was no evolution. It was just changing um, length of the beak and back, back and forth, back and forth. But withholding evidence like that to give the impression that Darwin's finches confirmed evolution, he said that's scientific misconduct. Interesting. Okay, so I will stop at this point. But the book, again, is called Politically Incorrect Guide to Science. And if nothing else, it should cause you to want to research further because there are these interesting events out there and, th and things that are going on in scientific areas. If you don't care about the evolution, 
creation idea, then look at some of the other chapters in the book. Fascinating material. All right. Well, thanks and uh, have a good rest of your day.